All right, let's, uh, let's grab our Bibles. Turn with me, if you would, again to the book of Acts, chapter 11, as uh, we continue on part four of Discovering Antioch. You know, it dawned on me as I was chewing through this, the Lord, as he has done many times, as I sit down to work out a series, uh, he's inviting me, and I believe, consequently, he's inviting us to really go deeper into some of the concepts that he's introducing to us. When I was first thinking many months ago about laying out the series on Discovering Antioch, it, it was very much a, a vision-driven series, uh, very exciting and inspiring about all the different things that Antioch Church was and consequently all the things that, that we will be. But I'm, I'm, I'm really feeling the direction of the Lord to move from the we concept of just laying out the vision, this kind of conceptual idea of what we could be in the future. And I feel the Lord saying, I really want to move my people into a greater measure of maturity. Because to the degree that we are growing and maturing and transforming, to that degree, all of those things that we like to excite people with, to that degree, those things will happen. So to the degree that we are growing as Christians, as the Bible defines what Christians are, to that degree, we will reach nations. To the degree that we are being established in our sonship and we're being equipped for our assignment, to that degree, we will be a multiracial, multi-ethnic church. To the degree that we're being established in our sonship and equipped for our assignment, to that degree, we will plant churches. We will see harvest happen. So, so we could sit here and say, Antioch is all of these things, or we could say, let's do the difficult work of diving into the scripture, wrestling with the mindsets, perhaps, that we've adopted that are hindering us from being those things, and let's, let's get down to the nitty-gritty where the rubber meets the road of God and his spirit and his word transforming our lives so that the vision can take place. Amen? Acts chapter 11 I'm actually going to move up, and we're going to begin at verse 19, and we're going to end at verse 26. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch, and they began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. What I did this morning, letting you know that you can call upon the name of the Lord, You can be rescued and delivered from sin, fear, oppression, guilt, and all of the things that are holding you back in life. You can be translated from the dominion of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's son. That's called good news. You do not have to live under the dominion of the devil and darkness any longer. You were created to live under the dominion of life and light and love. And friends, that's good news. The Lord's hand, verse 21, was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So these guys go down, they stop preaching the message just to Jews, they start opening it up to Gentiles, all different ethnic groups that were outside of the Jewish persuasion, and all of a sudden people believe, because upon believing in the good news, Scripture says we are saved. But it also says, according to John chapter 3, that their spirits are just babies. Every single one of us, when we first came to know Christ, our spirits came alive, but like my little two little boys at home who are just immobile and so dependent and need to be fed regularly, I mean, we have them on a very regular feeding schedule, okay? Now, what's going to happen is, is 
they're going to have an opportunity to grow. And I'm curious how many of us, and, you know, feeding, getting a feeding once a week is, is not, right? Imagine what my boys would look like if I fed them once a week as little preemies. It would not be a good thing. And so here, these people, are, they're new in the faith. They're new in the Lord. Verse 22, news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. And so they said, well, we can't have all these spiritual babies without a mom or a dad to put a bottle in their mouth, spiritually speaking, and help them grow. So they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and he saw evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Friends, let me say this to you. I encourage you, remain true to the Lord with all of your hearts. Remain true to the Lord. No matter what's happening around us, no matter what the cultural lies that bombard us on a regular basis, I encourage you this morning, remain true to the Lord. Remain true to the Lord. All of our young people in here, I'm looking at Dylan back there. Remain true to the Lord, son. Remain true to the Lord. It doesn't matter what your friends say. It doesn't matter what your friends do. I'm I'm here to tell you today that if you will remain true to the Lord, he will continue. He will always be there to guide, direct, strengthen, lead. He'll bolster you up. Walking away from God is not the answer if you want to see blessing and success in your life. Remain true to the Lord. I encourage you today. Verse 24, Barnabas was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Again, here's this harvest taking place. And I believe it's part of our prophetic destiny to be a part of harvest coming into this house. It's why we have partner ministries. It's why we have Freedom Training Center. It's why we have so many different things that are going on so that we can help this harvest. And and friends, let me just say, that harvest is something that we will all be responsible for on some level or another. The way that we disciple a harvest is not just by a, a, a weekend meeting or a monthly gathering. The way that we disciple harvest is life on life, skin on skin, face to face, pulling out our Bibles, finding out where they've been, where they're at, and helping them get by God where they're supposed to go. And I believe that that's part of our destiny. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. He realized there's way too many new converts here for me to carry this load by myself. So he goes and finds this renegade man who got radically saved named Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and they taught great numbers of people. One of our responsibilities is to teach. It is to teach the word. The pure, unadulterated, uncompromised, living, breathing, inerrant word of God. And that's something that we're going to give ourselves to. On a corporate setting, on a small group level, we are called to teach and establish and disciple people in the truth of the word. Because it is only the word by which we grow. And so here, look at this verse. This was our launching pad verse from last week. And so the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Make no mistake about it, we are a Christian church. A Christian church. And that word Christian leaves room for definition in our pluralistic culture. So I believe that there in Acts chapter 11 verse 26, it was very clear. When they said the Christ, they were called Christians first at Antioch, it was very clear. They were distinct 
They were a distinguished, set-apart group of people, and there was no question in anybody's mind, oh, those are people that are God followers, they're Christ followers, they live holy, they serve the poor, um, they're devout, that's who they are. But nowadays, when we say that we are a Christian church or we are Christian people, or I am a Christian, it's funny, a number of years ago I was watching, or I heard about, uh, on the Grammys, I believe it was, these people get up and they're like, oh, praise God, praise God, yo, praise God, right? And then you just take a look at their, take a look at their videos, you take a look at what they're wearing, they're like, oh, praise God, right? No, that's, that's French, sir, that's not Christian, as the Bible defines what Christian is. So for us to say that Antioch is a Christian church, well, then we have to do a little Bible study on what the scriptures say it means to be Christian. Last week, we introduced that there are four, what I'm going to call distortions on Christianity, and we're going to review those today. Um, Number one, we talked about the cultural Christian, the cultural Christian. And we we said, and here's how we're doing this. We're going to lay out our description of each of these based on how, what their view of God is, what their view of church, what their view of life are determined by. So the cultural Christian determines their view of God, their view of life, their view of church, everything that they see around them, the newspaper that they read, the books, the, 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 the media, all the things that they are, are taking into them, their Christianity is shaped by the culture around them. Friends, I I want you to know that there are, and it's not mainstream, but there are people that are working very diligently to erase the lines of gender. In fact, if you'll just go and you'll do do a little bit of a search, moms and dads, you should really pay attention to this. David, do you remember, David showed me a a book earlier this weekend uh, about a couple of authors who, in, in children's books, children's books, so third, three years old, four years old, five years old, pre-K, already uh, laid out in animated form are books that are sh- telling little boys that it's okay that they're not really little boys, they're, they're really little girls. And they're telling little girls that they're not really girls, they're, they're, they're little boys. And there is a language strategy that is being developed to tell people that who you were born as is not who you really are, and that's Okay. This is, an, this is an example of us saying, well, you know, what, what the scripture says in Psalm 139, where it says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that's, that's not really true, because if you want to be a girl, then everybody, I mean, the books that I'm reading, and the magazines that I'm reading, and Oprah saying that if you really think that you're a girl, even though you were born with male anatomy, then you really are a girl. This is an example of cultural Christianity. Are you guys hearing me this morning? Come on, talk to me now. It's, it's, it's this idea that every single one of us who come into a Christian or a kingdom function or gathering or church or life group, we all come in with things that the culture has conditioned us to believe are acceptable and right and true. Number two, the consumer Christian, their view of God and church and life is determined by enjoyment and personal gain or personal pleasure. This is what I call, and we're gonna to get to these keywords here in a bit, this is the mass marketing approach to Christianity. 
So if we can just lower the standards low enough, and if we can heighten the appeal sensually and soulishly enough, we'll get more people. We may not get more disciples, but we'll definitely get more people. Number three, we have the convenient Christian. Their view of church is determined by comfort and ease. So I'm a part of you as long as it's comfortable. Jesus, I'll follow you as long as it's easy. Jesus had a couple of things to say about that. We're going to look at some scriptures here in a few minutes on things that Jesus had to say to the convenient Christian. Because the cross is never convenient. Transformation is never convenient. And we understand this from a natural standpoint. Someone wants to be a concert pianist or someone wants to be an Olympic athlete. We understand that if someone wants to be a brilliant engineer, if someone wants to be a world-selling author, we understand for them that the process is not convenient. There's sacrifices that they'll have to make. But if you want to be a Christian, we're going to remove all the obstacles from you because God loves you. Christianity is not convenient because the cross is not convenient. Dying to yourself reconditioning your mind to the word of God is not convenient. It's not easy. Staying married to someone is not convenient. Come on, talk to me this morning. And then number four, we have what we call the crisis. The crisis, Christian. What is their view of life determined by? It's determined by help in the time of need. I'll follow you. Jesus, I'll go to the ends of the earth with you as long as when I'm in trouble, you'll deliver me. Now, we just said earlier, Scripture says, God says, I want to to deliver you. Call upon me and I will deliver you. Friends, we're talking about something drastically different here. We're talking about people who by their own volition and will refuse to change, yet want to be saved from the pain of their poor decisions. And so they say, I'll go to that church as long as when I need help, they'll help me. Or I'll go to that life group as long as when I need to be moved, they'll move me. Come on. And then we have what we call the kingdom Christian. Their view of life, their view of the church, their view of God is determined by scripture. It is determined by God's spirit and it's determined by sonship. I was reading a post from a friend of mine. He was actually one of my seminary professors. He and I were talking back and forth. He was one of of the most influential guys during my four years uh, in seminary. He would have me over to his house and we would have great discussions about certain things and he really conditioned my mind to think and think deeply about certain issues as it relates to scripture and theology. I posted something this week and he responded to it with a phrase that he coined, sentimental theology. What is sentimental theology? Sentimental theology very simply is where we choose certain areas of scripture that we want to espouse, that we choose to agree with, And we deny, and we avoid, and we even go so far as to cutting out certain things. So those who deny the supernatural have created what we call a sentimental theology. It's not a pure theology. It's not an accurate theology. It's not a theology that covers the whole counsel of Scripture. It's a theology that says, well, that doesn't really line up with my rationalistic intelligence. And so, you know, those things are metaphors, there have been so many, we don't, have, we don't have time to go into this, but there have been so many brilliant theologians over the years devoid of the Spirit of God who have made a life and made a living off of being incredible intellectuals yet are devoid of the power of God operating in their lives. 
That is a sentimental theology. It is not a kingdom Christian. A kingdom Christian says, if God says that I can speak in tongues, by God, let me speak in tongues. I may understand it. It may be a little uncomfortable. Some people may think it's awkward, but if the scripture says that I can and I should, and it's given to me as a gift, then by God, bring it on. That's a kingdom Christian. There's a lot here to be shared about that. Let's look at some key words. Some of these things I'm reviewing and repackaging from last week, and then we're actually going to layer this from week to week because I think that the Lord is inviting us to mature as kingdom Christians. And one of the ways that we do that is becoming what I'm going to call consciously competent. Let me explain this very quickly. This teaching comes from Dennis Peacock where he lays out different modes of awareness. Number one, if I had a grid like a Johari window up in here in the top left-hand corner, I'd put up a grid and we can do that in the next weeks. But we move from a place or we begin at a place where we are unconsciously incompetent. What does that mean? That means you don't know what you don't know. It means you're a fool and everybody else knows it but you. I am unconsciously incompetent. There is a lot of things that I cannot do well. I may think that I can do them well until I start to do them. Then I realize, oh my goodness. Then I move from a place of unconscious incompetency to a place of conscious incompetency. I now realize that I cannot do what I thought that I could do or didn't know that I thought that I could do. I am consciously aware that I cannot do that well. I am consciously aware that when uh, I... I face certain struggles or certain sins in my life, I am now consciously aware that nine times out of 10, I fail. I'm becoming aware that this particular area, this proclivity, this propensity, this this, uh, tendency in my life, I am becoming aware that this is something that's operating inside of me. Another way of saying this, I teach leadership quite a bit and I teach on what's called leadership blind spots. You see this in people all the time. If you had any interaction with people, You know that people have blind spots. Areas in their lives that are crippling them that they're not even aware. Maybe it's the way that they talk to somebody. Maybe within a marriage, it's it's the way that a husband is always so indifferent. Or he comes home and he checks out. It's a blind spot. Maybe it's not a heart issue. Maybe it's just a skill issue in his or her life that they're not aware that there's weaknesses in their lives that are hurting them. They're unconsciously incompetent. Then they need a friend or a spouse or a pastor or a discipler or a life group leader. Scripture says this. It says wounds from a friend can be trusted. A gift to you is someone in your life who will say, did you know, were you aware? Were you consciously incompetent? Did you know that this area of your life is something that is hurting you? Did you know that if you continue going down this road, it is going to destroy your life? It is going to destroy your marriage. Scripture talks much about a real friend to someone who can tell you the truth. A wise man can, re- can be rebuked and he will consider it a joy. Why is that? Because a wise man doesn't want to live in the place of unconscious incompetency or conscious incompetency. A wise person wants to progress into the next level, which we call conscious competency. What does this mean? It means that we are consciously and intentionally We are deliberately and consistently working to grow in an area of our lives. There are things that I'm doing 
as a man, as a father, as a husband that I am not good at yet, but I am consciously working so that I can become more proficient in those areas. I work diligently to become a proficient speaker. I work diligently to become a man of patience, to become a man who is gentle, a man who is gracious because that is not my natural tendency. I work diligently to listen more than I speak because those are all areas that are shortcomings in my life. And every single one of us as Christians should be operating in a yoke, a training regiment, a training process of becoming consciously competent. When I was younger, and I really taken to the game of basketball, I had somebody come and say, listen, son, you are right-handed, which means that when you square up to go to the basket, your natural automatic desire is going to be to go to the place that you're strong. I wasn't aware of that. And then when he told me that, I said, okay, that's easy. Watch this. Boing, lose the ball. Put in my left hand, not as strong, not as easy, not as fluid, not as smooth. Stolen, stolen, stolen. Try to go for a left-hand layup, block. What, what is that? You are incompetent. And so what they would do is they prescribe for me training regiments. God has worked out training regiments in your life to move you from the place of conscious incompetency to the place of consciousness competency. So when you find yourself always around certain types of people, you ought to look up and go, oh, God, this is God's training regiment for me right now. Come on, and he's moving me to a place where I can consciously be competent in being gracious, kind, gentle, wise, so on and so forth. And so as I worked over and over and over and over again, here's something that is just crazy. Now, when I play the game of basketball, I shouldn't share this with some of you guys, my natural tendency now is to go left. I was playing a couple weeks ago, in fact, and some joker called me out. He goes, oh, he gonna go left, he gonna go left. So now I'm having to work hard to retrain, which was once my natural tendency is now my weakness. Because here's what happens. When you work diligently enough, you move from the place of consciousness competency to unconscious competency. Now it's just automatic. It's automatic. Basketball is such an incredible example of this. Fighting is a great example of this. When you do something over and over again, my coach would call it, he'd call it automatic. He said, no matter what situation you find yourself in, if you will be faithful to the drills, then no matter what uncertain variables come your way, you have done it so many times that now you're unconsciously competent. And the people that are unconsciously competent in something always make it look easy. It doesn't matter what it is. I remember the first time I picked up a guitar. I hated it. My fingers would hurt so bad. And I'd just play that thing over and over and over again. And I have friends that say, hey, listen, if you just keep playing the guitar, then what will happen is, is your fingers, they'll get tough, you'll develop calluses, and you can continue doing that. And then there was this, there was this place of unconscious, or I'm sorry, conscious incompetency, where I would have to just work so difficultly to move from one chord to the other. So hard. People would give me chords for a song, and it was horrific. It was horrific because there was about a five-second delay from one chord to the other. The song is still going on. I'm at the chord that's behind it. 
But then if you keep doing it, you'll get to a place like where Joe or Julie or Caitlin or all these guys are at. They just, it doesn't matter. They don't even have to have music in front of them because they have worked so hard in a training process that now they're just unconsciously competent. This is why we're talking about these things because many of us may not realize, many of us may be unconsciously incompetent in not realizing I've been a consumer Christian. And it's not, you know, and it, it could be that it's not even your fault. I don't know what your spiritual background has been. I don't know what teaching you've been listening to. But depending on what you've been fed, you will become. And if we've been feeding ourselves on certain things, we'll come into a place and we'll go, every single person around here ought to be loving me. They ought to be saying hi to me. They ought to be inviting me out. They ought to be telling me how wonderful I am. Everybody around me ought to be catering to me. Every, and they just might be unconscious incompetency. You might be unaware that you're unaware. And that's why we're talking about what we're talking about right now. Let's look at some key words here. As we look at what a cultural Christian is, some key words here is mixture. What do I mean by that? It means I'll take a little bit of what Oprah says. I'll take a little bit about, you know, what, what this person says about raising kids. And I like this opinion, opinion column over here. And, and th- man, I saw this incredible Facebook article over here about, uh, you know, you ought, you ought to go ahead and date around even though you're married. And I'll just listen to what this song says over here about what it means to carry myself like a man or a woman. I remember I sat down with a group of young kids when I was, college, when I was in college at the end of uh, my mission trips. I would work at a camp in Tulsa called Camp Lockridge. And we would have these uh, kids that would come in, about 300 kids every week, and we would circle them out every week and one week out of the summer, we would have uh, an inner city camp for kids. We'd sponsor them, bring them in, take them out, go fishing, catch toads and play basketball and archery. And it, it was just brilliant. It was wonderful. And I remember sitting down with these young guys. I had, I had a group of kids about 12 to 13 years old, all lived in North Tulsa, inner city part of Tulsa. And I said, all right, guys, I want you to tell me what your definition of a man is. And they began sharing all these different things with me about what, what a man is. Well, a man is someone who tells a woman what to do, or a man is someone who has a bunch of girlfriends, or a man is someone who has the best car, or certain types of jewelry, or a a man is someone who is is hard. I said, okay. I said, now, who told you that? Who told you that? Or maybe somebody didn't tell them. Maybe they just watched and listened and looked around. Maybe they just looked at the people that they looked up to, or just the people that were available, and they looked up to by default. And they said, well, all these people have nice cars with rims on them. And, all, and, and you know, you kind of graduate in your manhood based on the thickness of your chain. And the louder your music is, the more of a man you are. And, you, and make sure that nobody ever punks you in, in, in public. And so we sat down and I said, okay, well, let me talk with you about what manhood is. Let me talk with you about something that's very important, that if you don't establish your identity based on truth, then someone else will establish your identity based on a lie. And so let me tell you about the greatest man. And I just began to proceed to teach them about manhood based on the truth of who Jesus was. And the point I'm making is very simply this. Worldview is like a seed. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 13. If you're taking notes, jot that down. Jesus tells us these, these, these incredible parables about the kingdom. In fact, let's just go there. It's, it's important enough for us to go there. Matthew chapter 13 We'll continue looking here at the, uh, at the grid here in a second, but Matthew chapter 13, 
in verse one, Jesus begins telling this parable about a farmer who goes out and he starts casting this seed. Some seed fell upon hard ground. Some seed fell upon thorny ground. Some seed fell upon ground that had stones in it so that when the roots went down, it didn't go down very deep. And then Jesus says something that's very, very interesting here. In verse 13, he says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. Ever seeing, but never perceiving. For these people's hearts have become calloused. And then he goes on and he says, if you don't understand the simplicity of the point of this parable, how are you going to understand anything in the kingdom? And here's what Jesus is communicating. Ideas are like seeds. Thoughts are like seeds. Every single one of us are hearing things, hearing ideas about what a marriage should look like, about what a man should look like, about what what a woman should look like, about how a country should be run, about what we should be teaching our kids uh, at school. Those ideas are all seeds that go into you and they grow. And they become a presupposition that turns into a worldview. They become a belief system by which you judge everything in life. Ideas have consequences. The things that you think about, the things that you read, you may think, oh, this is harmless. I'm strong enough. I'm, I'm, I'm acute enough to read this. Be mindful about what you're sowing into the bedrock, the seedbed of your belief system, the ecosystem of your belief system. Be mindful. That's why scripture is referred to as a seed, the incorruptible seed, the seed of truth. If you want to be a kingdom believer, sow the seeds of kingdom thinking into the seedbed of your mind and it'll grow. And what will happen is over time, you'll realize I used to think that being a man was this. And now I realize that I was wrong. And now I must move from consciousness and competency to working diligently, interacting with the spirit and the word to becoming consciously competent. And this is the process of growth and transformation in every area of your lives. Are you hearing me this morning? Key words for a culture Christian mixture, pseudo, it's a form of Christianity. It's not the real thing. Remember this phrase, the mind will justify what the heart has chosen. One of the reasons why we have the New Testament, one of the reasons why God would move upon the Apostle Paul and John and Peter is because these people were following Christ, but then after a while, mixture began to come in. In fact, if you read through the book of Deuteronomy, which Pastor Dan referenced earlier, God commanded the people of Israel that when you go into the promised land, don't begin mixing and integrating with those people. It wasn't because they were dirty people and he didn't like them. It was because they were pagan. They were godless. It was because they had developed a way of life that excluded God. And God knew that if you begin interacting with those people on a heart level, then the way that they believe will become the way that you believe and you will find yourself running away from me. Who you associate with is one of the most important things in your life, even into your adulthood. I find it preposterous. It is amazing to me that even in the adult years, 40s and 50s and 60s, how depending on what you want to hear, you will find people even that age 
that will speak to you things that appeal to your soul and justify what your heart has chosen. It is incredible. Those principles do not change. It's not just a young person thing. Remind, be careful who you hang out with. Watch out for that peer pressure. No. You will surround yourself. You will gravitate towards what you really want to hear from people. If you want to hear that you don't have to go to the corporate assembly, I promise you, you will find people that say, oh, that's absolutely right. Age does not equate maturity or wisdom. Popular Christianity, pressure Christianity, social Christianity. We see this a lot in our youth groups. If we can just get enough people in the youth group that say it's okay to do certain things, then it must be okay. Because there's enough people in the group that say it's okay. Let's take a look at key words for consumer Christianity. Cheap. It's a cheap Christianity. If all it takes for me to get you into a room is pizza and games, if all it takes is some kind of perk or a nice band, I've read the books. I've read what they told me to do to build a fast church. I know what to do. I know, I, know, I know how I'm supposed to dress. I know what I'm supposed to say. And most importantly, what I'm not supposed to say. I know what our worship leaders are supposed to look like. And, and we're all supposed to have these little things right here underneath our, our lip. And uh, we're, 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 I know how long the worship's supposed to go. It's cheap. It is a cheap Christianity. No offense to those still rocking the soul patch. It is a appealing, it's an enjoyable Christianity. It's an entertainment-driven Christianity. It's marketable. Can we market this? Jesus had something to say about marketability in John 6. He says, hey, if you guys really want to follow me, drink my blood. <laughs> I can just imagine Thaddeus and Bartholomew pulling him aside and saying, listen, yo, we're businessmen. We've done this thing before, and uh, that's not very marketable. Ain't nobody going to follow you if you just say, you need to drink my blood. He's like, what, do you want to leave too? A marketable Christianity. We have created sanitized environments. Don't lift your hands, don't cry out loud, don't groan, don't travail, don't jump up and down, don't go crazy for God. Listen, we are in, an, we are in a time, we are in a time, we are in a, we are in a season of history where we must travail before God. I'm reminded of 1 Samuel chapter 1 where Hannah was looked upon by the priest Elkanah. She was racking back and forth and he says, my God, woman, you're crazy. You need to remove that. You need, you need to just calm down a little bit. We, we, we need to make this thing safe for all the other people who aren't crazy like you. You must be drinking something. And she says, oh yeah, I've been drinking something. I've been drinking the prayers of desperation. I've been drinking the desperation of fasting and mourning and grieving for a son that will be born to me. Listen, nobody in this room knows what anybody else in this room is going through. Don't you dare judge somebody who shakes under the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a safe environment to express the manifestations of God. And I'm not afraid of it. I'm not afraid of it. I'm not looking for a marketable Christianity. I am looking for an impactful Christianity. 
And I don't know about you, but times when I've sat back with my arms folded and sterile uh, uh, with the Lord, those times haven't changed my life. But when he has come upon me in his power and I found myself saying, God, I must have you more than I have my next breath. And I found myself doing things that were uh, inexplainable. Those were the moments that God put his fingerprints on my heart and changed my life. That is who Antioch Church will be because that is what a kingdom Christian is. Christianity is never supposed to be marketable. I didn't get into this thing to market something. I got into this so the power of God could be demonstrated in the earth and the kingdom could grow. It's a mass-produced Christianity. It's a what's-in-it-for-me Christianity. Let me just say this as we continue to move towards Ephesians 4. Only children think what's in it for me. When you move into maturity in your marriage and you move into maturity in your fathering and your mothering, you realize that not much is in it for you. And you realize that there's a different kind of reward. It's, it's, there, there is such a thing as the reward of sacrifice. There is such a thing as the reward of obedience and the reward of being selfless. And it is a reward that is far more satisfying and fulfilling than, than a cheap reward of getting your own way whenever and however you want it. Let's take a look at the convenient Christian. Key words here. Is it easy? Is it easy? Non-committal. Short term. Short term. How many Christians who got saved last year, how many Christians who got saved 10 years ago are still following hard after God? And you know, this is very real to me. Just this past week, I was looking had a couple of friends of mine on Facebook. Many of these guys were major leaders. Many of these guys are people that in college I looked up to. These are the guys who discipled me. These are the people that I wanted to be like. And now just 15 years out of college, I look at their lives and they're cultural Christians. They're convenient Christians. Some of them not even following God anymore. Christianity is not easy. Convenient Christianity is a transient Christianity. What do I mean by that? When we treat church like a concert, then we will just continue to move. Or when we treat them like uh, speaking seminars. I'm not an inspirational speaker. I could be. I have no desire to be an inspirational speaker following on the speaking circuit. I have no desire for this place to have the best rock band in town. I want the presence of God and the living word of God. And it might be that times in order to have that, I may not communicate as eloquently and articulately. It may be that at times I say things or I stutter or I, I, I do things a little bit differently because I want the power of God in this house. You will never grow with transience. You will never sink roots and produce fruit with the transient mentality. There are times with even my little kids at four and five when they try something difficult and they want to give up the first time. That's called transience. That's called convenience. That's called I tried this. It didn't work. Nothing in life that is worth happening will happen the first time that we try it. Say, no, son, stick with it. Keep trying. Do it again. Take a breather. Do it again. Pray. Call upon the name of the Lord. Ask for help. Get that dexterity down. You can do it. Don't get frustrated. Let's work at it again. You're going to be great. 
crisis Christianity keywords here. They're isolated. They live in a constant state of emergency. They make poor decisions. They're immature. They live like victims. They're displaced or they displace their responsibility. You know when someone lives in crisis Christianity when it's never their fault. When it's always, it was my father, my mother. Oh, goodness. I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a friend of mine in a car one day, and we were playing a little game about victim Christianity. And I said, okay, what about this situation? And he just laid out these reasons. Well, this is why I don't have a girlfriend right now, because, and this is why I don't have a job right now, and this is why it's somebody else's fault. And everything, he somehow brilliantly traced it back to his parents or his environment or me or somebody. We were just playing this little game, and I thought, wow. That's scary because people live like that. It's always somebody else's fault. If you would have done this, if you would have said that, if you would have been more of this, if you wouldn't have done this, then I would be better right now. And friends, until you come to the place where you're willing to accept responsibility and look squarely at yourself and say, what is it in me that must change? Now, I know you've heard this before, but it just goes for mentioning, no matter where you go, there you are. It doesn't matter how many new marriage partners you get with. It doesn't matter what new job you get. No matter, it doesn't matter what new position that you get. It doesn't matter what geographical location you change yourself to. No matter where you go, there you are. And in every scenario, you are the common denominator. You are the common denominator. All of those things are just, what are those things called? They are the, uh, the, low, the, the, the numerators. All of those other variables are numerators. But the thing that is the common denominator is you. Your maturity, your growth, your mindset, your attitude, your decision-making, all of those things are the common denominator. You know, it dawned on me as I came in here this morning, I thought, uh, this is not going to be a message, and this is not going to be a house that we're transient people who are looking to be coddled and pampered. It's not going to be a place where they stay. And I had, you know, and I weekly, I weekly face the decision on whether or not we're going to compromise that. We're not. A kingdom Christian, key words here, sonship, sonship, covenant, submission, doing what God and even spiritual leaders ask you to do that maybe you don't want to do in a healthy manner, in a godly, biblical manner. I know that we can get off with that, but I'm talking about the healthy, godly, sanctified, redeemed spiritual authority in your life that says, you know what? You need to stop that right now. Stop it. Stop it. How many of you, if somebody sat down across the table from you and said, you know what, you're acting like a fool right now. You need to cut that out. How many of you would get offended and leave? Don't raise your hands. (laughs) And if you would, you need to cut that out right now. (laughs) I remember I was sitting down for breakfast with a real dear friend of mine one time, and and, uh, I love hanging around mature people. I was sitting down at breakfast with him, and we were talking, and he was explaining something in his life and certain areas of lethargy and apathy that were going on. And, and then he started talking about how much he loved these raspberry mocha truffle lattes and how he drank these things like every day. And I just, by the quickened by the power of the Lord, I says, you need to fast that for a month. And he looked at me and he says, okay, I will. He fasted that drink for a month, and God miraculously awakened a passion inside of his heart. He began pursuing God at a different level. Why is that? Because he responded to the voice of someone who says, you know what, there's something in your life that you need to cut out or change. That's called maturity. Submission, obedience, devotion. These are the words that characterize who we are as Christians. Sacrifice, training, preparation, mission. 
If you'll just give me five minutes, I'm gonna just roll through this really quick. Let me talk about approaches to Jesus. Can I just do this very quickly? You know, there's a couple here from Denver. They travel an hour and a half one way every week. And I was having dinner with them a couple weeks ago and they says, listen, you must preach or you must have a service that is at least as long as it takes us to get here. (laughs) All right, amen. Approaches to Jesus. The cultural Christian, the cultural Christian follows Jesus. He says, I follow Jesus if Jesus agrees with me. You ever notice somebody who will take scriptures and they'll twist them to justify whatever it is inside of their life that they want to continue living or believing or doing? That is a cultural Christianity. And they say, Jesus, I'll follow you as long as you keep saying the things that I want you to say. I will manipulate and I will twist your words in order for me to get my point. Well, doesn't God love everybody? Everybody? Oh, how can God be an angry? How can God be a God of judgment and a God of love? He's totally a God of love. And because he's a God of love, then I can do whatever I want because he loves me. And I can love whoever I want because he loves me. Listen, that is saying I'll follow Jesus as long as Jesus agrees with me. The consumer Christian says I'll follow Jesus as long as he blesses me. And Jesus' response to that was foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. What does that mean? It means there are gonna be parts of this road that may not necessarily look like blessing. But I will tell you this today, church, listen, if you will live the life of obedience and sacrifice, if you will live the life of devotion and intimacy with God, what I will promise you is this, is that everything in your life will ultimately be a blessing in disguise because God is the one who can redeem anything in your life. The convenient Christian says, I follow Jesus if he appeases me. The crisis Christian says, I'll follow Jesus if he helps me. But the kingdom Christian says, I follow Jesus because he's my Lord. The cultural Christian says, this is who Jesus is. This is their approach to Jesus. Jesus is negotiable. It's negotiable. In other words, there are certain things that he says that, yeah, I'm going to skip over that part of my devotional today. But when he talks about blessed are you and and pressed down and shaken together, yeah, that's the part of Jesus that I like. Negotiable. You can take it or leave it. The consumer Christian's approach to Jesus, he says Jesus is enjoyable. He loves us. Oh, just love on me, Jesus. Oh. Oh, I just love you. I just want to stay here with you forever. Jesus, this is awesome. You know what we should do? We should just set up tents up here because Moses and Elijah and you are here and there's so much glory. We should just stay here forever. Silence. That's a Bible reference in Matthew chapter 17 for those of you guys who didn't catch that. I'll follow Jesus if he blesses me. Okay? Enjoyable. The convenient Christian says Jesus is optional. It's optional. If I'm too busy, if I've made other plans, well, you know, it's optional. There's a story about this. Jesus tells a story about a particular uh, person who's throwing a, a banquet, a feast for his wedding. And he goes out and he says, I want you to go to these different people. And he went to one person. He says, hey, listen, the master's throwing a, a, a banquet. They're having a wedding. You're invited. And he goes, uh, you know, I just, bought a, I just bought a piece of land. It's optional, right? Another person said, well, you know, I, I, I got to tend to my animals. 
It's optional, right? I mean, it's like I have to go. The convenient Christian says that whatever requires a commitment inside of me, I'm gonna shy shy away from a little bit. You know, a number of years ago, the Lord showed me that there's a bit of character flaw in my life. I don't know where it came from, but I found myself not, not committing to certain invitations because I was always waiting for like the better one to come by. Anybody ever been there before? Whether it be from friends or other things. Well, I've just, I, you know, maybe I'll, I'll think about it. Well, I'll get back to you. You'll, end up, you'll ultimately end up getting bit because at some point all the doors will close. You'll be by yourself. The crisis Christians approach to Jesus is Jesus is available. And the kingdom Christians approach to Jesus is he's king. Let's take a look at all these together if we could. Jesus is negotiable. Jesus is enjoyable. Jesus is optional. Jesus is available. He's available. He's the one. You're always going to be available. Whenever I get into trouble, you're, you have to always be available to help me. I find it interesting that in Luke 15, the father didn't pursue the prodigal son. And the prodigal son found himself where he says the father should be available right now, but he had to go through a process in his life where someone didn't rescue him from his own foolishness so that pure humility and brokenness could happen inside of him and he could go, Father, I'm a changed man. And it happened because the father didn't rescue him. In closing, this is what the cultural Christian thinks Jesus should do, what I think he should do. Cultural Christian says Jesus should do what I think he should do. The consumer Christian says he should do what I want him to do. The convenient Christian says he should do what I order him to do. Convenient-minded people are very demanding. Everything's around their schedule. What's best for them? That's not gonna work for me. The crisis Christian says he should do what I need him to do. The kingdom Christian says I do what he thinks, wants, demands, and needs me to do. You know, if Jesus were a card or a piece of paper or a document, the cultural Christian's approach to Jesus, he would be an opinion column or maybe a Facebook post. The consumer Christian would say, he's my lottery ticket. The convenient Christian says, he's my hallway pass, removing all obstacles from me. The crisis Christian says, he's my get out of jail free card. But the kingdom Christian says, you are the living word. And everything that you say is perfect and true. Tried in the fire seven times. Every word of the Lord is flawless. And when you speak, I stand in attention and listen. Church, let's be kingdom Christians. What do you say we build a kingdom church? What do you say that we be people that move from consciousness incompetency to sons and daughters, deeply established in our identity, equipped and armed, prepared and processed for our assignment so that heaven can invade earth. God's dream of transforming this world to look like heaven can happen. How many of you guys want to be a part of that? Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet this morning.